it, that's something I've really, really missed on, on a Sunday morning is when I'm giving the, the message. Um, it's just so different just talking into a camera and not having sort of anyone to sort of reactions from the congregation to, to bounce off of as, as well. So, it's, so this morning, I want you to all to be really expressive. So if you're really interested, you've got to do this. And if you're bored, you can just go to sleep and, you know, it'll be like the good old days. So that'll be, that'll be good. Um, so uh, this morning, uh, we're in part two of our series, uh, which we have titled How to Plant a Church Again. And as we said at the beginning of last week's uh, message, when all of this is over, we're going to have to start again. We're going to have to replant Trinity Heights, which is a sort of a, a daunting prospect on one hand, but I think it's an exciting prospect as well. And it's full of, uh, it's full of hope, it really is. And, and I'm very ex uh, excited at the, the opportunity. So I think it's good for us to be thinking now about the kind of church that we want to be in the future. And as I said last week, it's not about getting a brand new vision. Uh, we have a vision, but we want to deepen in our understanding of that vision. And we wanted to deepen, become more textured, more detailed, and we want to uh, take it further than we already have. So with that in mind, I want to explore a little further some of the ideas we started exploring last week. And if you remember, uh, we were looking at John chapter one and the way that uh, John starts speaking about the, the incarnation, the fact that God has become a human being. And we were reflecting on how the incarnation can inform uh, the way that you and I go about being church and doing church together. Uh, that said, I'm, I'm just going to read again a passage from John chapter one. We'll start out with this. John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. So let me begin with this story. I, I'll never forget the time when a friend of ours at Trinity Heights started to explore Christianity for themselves uh, for the first time. And eventually uh, they moved from skepticism um, to becoming a very serious Jesus follower. But they came from a family who were majority atheists, maybe uh, one or two agnostics. But you can imagine that not everyone in her family was particularly thrilled that she was uh, exploring Christianity. Why would you do this thing? What are, what are you up to? But um, her mum was actually very open and very interested, so she started to come along to our Sunday services, which was, which was great. It was really good to, to have her there, and her response was really telling. It was a very encouraging response. I think it was very positive, 
but at the same time, it spoke volumes of the way that people perceive the church. Because initially, this is her, her response. She said, I'm relieved to know that you're not being pulled out of the culture. Now, just, th just think about that for a moment. I mean, that, that's a really interesting choice of words. I'm relieved to know that you're not being pulled out of the culture. That was her initial response. Um, and uh, so there's two things I want to point out here from that. First of all, is that this really is how people uh, look at us. This is how the church is so often perceived. Um, she was genuinely concerned that her daughter was going to sort of become disconnected from normal society and was going to enter into some weird Christian subculture. I don't know if any of you have ever had a friend or a family member who felt very close to at one time, but then there came this terrible distance between you because they went and joined a cult. And if you have never experienced that, maybe you've got a, a friend who has, and they can tell you, this is a very, very difficult, it's very painful, very heartbreaking experience. Because what happens is, is that first of all, there's a subtle change in their language, right? And the, the language has changed, and then becomes more and more pronounced. And soon they have this whole language, which is rather coded and strange and undecipherable, and you're not exactly sure what they're saying. And, and then uh, you find that they start to put distance between them and the people that have always loved them and been there for them. And then after a while, uh, you, you find that they start to treat everyone, their friends and family with a deep suspicion, whoever doesn't actually share the same beliefs that they do. And so friends and family are slowly edged out of their lives and, and the, the cult becomes this, this wedge that is driven deeper and deeper between all of their relationships. And so in the end, there is this sort of vast uh, chasm that lies between them and the, and the surrounding culture. So this friend's mum was concerned about a version of that. Uh, so that's the first thing. The church can be perceived, is very often perceived exactly that way. The second thing is that we're perceived this way for a reason. When someone expresses relief, phew, I'm glad my child's not being removed from the rest of society. That's not just a random thought that popped into her head. That, that's, that idea is based on something. It comes from somewhere. And while it may be very easy to write that off and say, oh, you, you're just confusing us with the cults. We're not like that. Um, I, we have to admit that there have been aspects of that kind of behavior which the church has been guilty of, that, that gradual distancing. Look, do you know that within five years, most people who become Christians do not have any friends who are not Christians? Within five years of being a Christian, most people who become Christians do not have any friends who are not Christians. Just, just think about that for a moment. So there's this, there's this sort of gradual distancing that takes place. Uh, there's the coded language. Very often people find the church's language undecipherable. I just don't know what any of these words, I don't understand the words coming out of your mouth. Uh, and, and then as well as the coded language and the gradual distancing, uh, sometimes, yes, we have treated people who don't share our exact same beliefs uh, with suspicion. We even treat other churches this way, let alone, uh, you know, people who are not part of the church at all. So we can't pretend that the church has never behaved this way. 
in uh, two or three weeks, we're going to hear from some friends at uh, Trinity Heights who have come to the church as skeptics. They, they are or have been skeptics, and they, they've certainly arrived at Trinity Heights as skeptics. And what you're going to hear is they're going to describe a very similar perspective of the church, very similar phenomena. And so when they speak in a few weeks' time, I hope you're going to really listen carefully to what they have to say. Because if we don't, we're not going to understand how powerful this perception is. And perception is everything. Right? We're not going to understand how powerful this perception is. And we won't work hard enough uh, or we won't know how to adjust for this. We have to keep on asking ourselves, what, what are the things that we're doing, that you and I are doing? Maybe just ordinary stuff, things that you and I think are ordinary, just normal stuff that we just take for granted, but which is actually reinforcing this view. To take, for example, something in our Sunday service. Um, Sunday services are really just, you know, uh, just one part of the church's life, but let's, let's take that aspect. It's the normal thing in most churches to take up an offering, right? They pass the offering plate down the row and you fork out your money, you put it, sometimes it's that bag with the little handles, you know what I'm talking about? And, and it gets passed down your row and then, then the usher takes it to the other end and passes it down, zigzags down the different rows, right? Um, and if you don't want to give that week, it's like, oh, not me, not me. You sort of sit back and you let the, let the bag pass, right? And the plate pass. Um, is charity hiding there? Is that, was that <laughs> Yeah, you, can, you, you duck, right? So you can just imagine how quickly that kind of thing, just a simple thing like that, which you and I treat as being normal, can actually make people feel sort of there's this insider, outside exclusivity. And so uh, just as an aside, I, I, I'm kind of interested to see what happens next when we, when we come back to doing things normally. Uh, are those churches going to go back to taking up an offering every week? or have they figured out other ways to support their work during this time? Um, but we have to at least be thinking in detail about that experience and, and, and making sure that we're steering away from those things which would reinforce that kind of, of vision. You know, when we do return to uh, normal church, right? When, we, when we're back up in the tower in 10T, um, you know, when you look out over the balcony, actually not, not the one looking out over the Hudson River, the, the other one looking out over the seminary. So that, that one on that side, um, that road between, that runs between the seminary and the church is also known as Reinhold Niebuhr Street. Have you noticed that, like the name Reinhold Niebuhr Street? And that's after the famous 20th century theologian. And he, um, he's famous for his work known for Christ and culture, Christ and culture. And in that book, he offers sort of a historical survey of the different, uh, the different ways that the church has related to and responded and sometimes reacted to the world around them. And so he identifies different responses and reactions and he gives them different names. And the first one he identifies is Christ against culture. Well, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? Christ against culture. And so thinking along these lines, the, the church, thinking in terms of Christ against culture, well, well how do you expect the, the church to become? Well, what do you imagine? It's going to become a little judgmental, a little judgy, right? 
and as well as being a little judgmental, it's, it's, it's mistakes their own voice for Christ's voice. And it's like, well, standoffish. I can't really learn anything from you outside the church. And so what ends up happening is that Christians withdraw into the community of the church. That's Christ against culture. But John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. As we said last week, God doesn't stand at a distance from culture. He doesn't hold culture, human culture at arm's length. Instead, God enters into a specific human culture at a specific time, speaking a specific language, adopting specific customs and specific traditions, right? And then from inside that nation, from inside that cultural heritage, within that language, God makes his appeal to humanity. But there is another aspect to this whole incarnational thing that John is, is pointing out here. And again, in order to make his point, you know what he does? He reaches back to Genesis chapter one, the creation story. Do you remember how last week we said that John sort of reaches, hints and quotes and uh, the creation story? Well, here he does it again. Um, and you, do you remember in Genesis chapter one in the creation story, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens of the, and the earth and the earth was covered in darkness. And then it says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so again, sort of drawing on the creation story, John says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And he says, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Feels like Christmas again, doesn't it? We always read this at Christmas. As with all good dramas, uh, John's drama revolves around a conflict. Now, this conflict is going to escalate and it's going to become more detailed and it's going to become more frantic as the gospel unfolds. By the time he, you know, at the end, you get to the end of the gospel, you've got Jesus in front of Pontius in front of Pontius Pilate, who is a representative of Caesar. So you have the kingdom of Rome against the kingdom of God. Um, and, and so uh, it, it's going to escalate in that way and become more detailed and frantic. But right here, John introduces this conflict in these more general terms um, of light and darkness, darkness and light. And so there is this darkness that is encroaching upon the light. But, but John... does not have that very, very, very pessimistic view of things that we talked about last week. You remember we talked about the deceitists? Any of you remember that? Um, and the deceitists are the people who think that, you know, God didn't come into this world really, not as a real human being, um, because this world is too disgusting. And we remember we talked about how they're more like the men in black version of Jesus, where they're sort of aliens in human suits and you unzip the human suit and step out of it. That's what Jesus really was. So th these are the deceitists. And they said that this human culture and human flesh and blood are so evil, so disgusting, so polluted, there's no way that God would have come in. And the only hope of salvation is for us to escape this evil, disgusting world. That, that's, uh, that's a deceitist view. But John doesn't say that. John says 
The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Let's think about that for a moment, about this sort of conflict that John sets up, these opposing sides of light and darkness, but also the way he sort of quantifies it, arranges it, um, sets the powers in balance, the kind of balance he gives them. Um, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Let's, let's bring this together and, and think about how this might inform this whole incarnating, making flesh, speaking in the indigenous language of our culture, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How, how does this inform that? This is not, as some suspect, an attempt at compromising the gospel in order to make it relevant. Some people think the gospel needs to be updated. We need to make it relevant to our contemporary society. Um, let me tell you, the gospel does not need to be made relevant. The gospel does not need updating because the gospel is already relevant. It is the most relevant thing I can think of for every man, woman, and child on this planet, for every human being. It is already relevant, right? I can't think of anything more relevant for our lives together. Um, so this is not about um, sort of just compromising and just going with the flow and just saying, well, you know, th this is just what the culture is doing, so we'll do it too. And, and uh, that, that's actually uh, what um, Reinhold Niebuhr calls Christ off the culture, right? We talked about Christ against the culture, but this is Christ off the culture. And those two, of course, are uh, loggerheads with each other. So they're the flip side of the same coin. Um, Christ of the culture, as opposed to Christ against the culture. Christ of the culture, Christ and this church become indistinguishable from uh, the surrounding culture itself. But John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We can't afford to have a naive and sanitized view of our culture. Our culture has a very dark underbelly. I mean, just let, let, let me just give you one example. Look at the way the permanent political class work at dividing, the permanent political class work at dividing the nation against itself, right? And how quickly everyone jumps on board and quickly starts demonizing each other. And, and then they start canceling each other out, not just on social media, but out of each other's lives as well. Our culture has a very dark side to it. So let's put this all together. We don't have a despairing view of culture that writes culture off altogether because we recognize that no, there are many places in culture, touching points between the gospel and culture, places where, where they complement each other, where they actually can be affirmed and, and, and have find an affinity with each other. But we also recognize the fact that, that uh, there are aspects of the culture which are going to militate against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so discerning the difference between those two is actually part of the work that needs to be done. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons why so many people in a rapidly secularizing culture, and one of the reasons why we are a rapidly secularizing culture is precisely because people, uh, uh, the church has sort of either stepped back and held culture at arm's length and stepped back from culture, stood at a distance from culture, or we've done the other thing where we just blended in with culture and were indistinguishable from it and you just really can't tell the difference there's nothing distinctive about us um ironically in that point an attempt to become relevant 
actually makes us irrelevant. So what we have to do is we, we have to work to, to navigate between these two extremes of Christ against culture and Christ of the culture. Think about the incarnation again, as Jesus becomes a human being, he grows, he becomes a man, he begins his teaching ministry. And what do we find? We find him, it says he eats with, the Pharisee said, he eats with tax collectors and sinners, you know, as if they were. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He eats with prostitutes. He sits at their tables. He has goes to their dinner parties, right? And if they had had coffee shops, he'd have been sitting in their coffee shops. If they had bars, he'd been sitting in their bars, sharing a beer with them, right? Jesus is with these people in a way that they knew. Look, he's really with us. He's really with us and he's really for us. Right? Utterly convinced of that. But at the same time, they also knew that he wasn't the same as them. He was, he had, he was, there was something very distinctive about him, distinctively different. He was different from the rest of them. Uh, and, and that was part of the why. Look, Jesus was a very charismatic figure. And, and at the time, at some points, everyone wanted to be his friend, right? Um, up until a point, right? So he, he was a charismatic figure. Everyone wanted to be his friend. And, and so there was something very unique and distinctive about him. That's part of the reason why people were drawn to him, because, precisely because he wasn't a reiteration of the same old, same old. It's the same old thing. Of course, it is a lot easier to intellectually and emotionally to just either withdraw from the culture or to just go with the flow. I mean, that's a lot, that's a much easier thing to do. I just want to be clear as we go through this series that we are inviting us at Trinity Heights, we're inviting each other to this other thing, which is more difficult, it's more complicated, it is harder work. It absolutely is. But in the long run, um, as we as we plant this church, to replant this church together. Um, it will be more rewarding. So I want to end here by inviting you to think this week about how we can navigate between those two sort of extremes of Christ against culture and Christ um, off the culture. And I want to think you to think about it like this. Think about a friend um, or maybe a relative or family member who is you know, maybe extremely skeptical. Who's the most skeptical person you know? A friend who maybe is deeply cynical about church, Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, all of that. Think about that person for a moment. Right? You can picture them in your mind. Okay. Now picture that person walking into one of our Sunday services. Think about that. Think about that person walking into one of our community groups. I know it may be hard to imagine this right now because we can't do this, but eventually we're going to do this, right? So imagine them walking into one of our community groups in someone's home. Or imagine them walking into a coffee shop or a bar where a group of your Christian friends are meeting and they're joining you. Now ask yourself this question. What do they see? What do they hear? What do they feel? What do they see? Do, do, they, do they perceive a, a vast chasm? Or do they see that actually there's a lot of affinity between them and, and the church? As they walk into that Sunday service or that community group or that bar, do, do they, what do they hear? Do they hear an indecipherable, strange, coded language? Are they they're not quite sure what you're saying or understanding? Or do they hear a language that they thoroughly understand? 
And what do they feel? Do they feel like an outsider? Or to their surprise, do they find a profound sense of belonging? So pray and think in these coming days for that friend. Let's keep it, let's make it specific, this prayer. And for, for our church, and, and let's pray. How, how, and let's start to imagine how can Trinity Heights in the future be a place where our friends can find a meaningful affinity, where we can find deep understanding and discover a joyful and profound sense of belonging. Amen.